Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate which leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, and tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge that there are many things that we do not understand. Lord, we acknowledge that in your wisdom, You have revealed to us truth. You have told us that you have the power and the desire to work on our behalf. If we would pray, if we would commit ourselves to you. And Lord, there are a number of other things that we want to know, questions that we have that you just do not answer. But I pray this morning as we look at your word, that you will give us the assurance, the confidence of your love, of your sovereign power to intercede for us and to work on our behalf, to bring about your will and to accomplish it in our lives. I pray that you would help us to be obedient to to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Shortly after the respected Dallas Theological Seminary was founded in 1924, it almost ceased to exist. Uh, The creditors were about to foreclose at noon on a certain day. And so President Lewis Berry Chafer met with his faculty in the office. They prayed fervently that God would provide. One of the men present that day was Dr. Harry Ironside, who prayed very characteristically of him. Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. Meanwhile, a tall Texas businessman stepped into the seminary business office and he spoke to the secretary and said, I just sold two carloads of cattle in Fort Worth, but I couldn't make a business deal go through. He said, I feel compelled to give the money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, but here's the check. The secretary timidly knocked on the door of Dr. Schaefer. Dr. Schaefer came and he took the check and he looked at it. And he realized it was for the exact amount of their debt. He turned to Harry Ironside and he said, Harry, 
God sold the cattle. It's not surprising that Dr. Ironside would say this in another place concerning prayer. People say sometimes, why do we need to pray? Does not our gracious God know all about us and what we need far better than we do? But we learn from the Word of God that God has chosen to do in answer to prayer what He might not do apart from prayer. He gives in answer to prayer some things He will not give apart from it. And so prayer is the resource of God's needy people. Prayer for ourselves and prayer on behalf of others. What is it about prayer that makes it seem so difficult? Why do we as Christians, and even as a church, struggle so mightily with prayer? I think the answer may surprise you. But I think we find it presented to us in the account of Peter's dramatic rescue from prison in Acts chapter 12. Last week we considered some of the background elements of this record, and I don't want to go into all those details again necessarily. We saw that Herod Agrippa I was in power, and and we're told in verse 1 that he violently persecuted the church, that he arrested James and had him executed. With this gruesome task completed, he extended his reach even further by arresting Peter and preparing to have him killed. We knew, we noted last week that the execution was delayed because of the Jewish religious festival of unleavened bread. But you know, if you think about this, this situation, it seemed at that time that Herod had everything pretty well in hand. He had attacked the church, captured James, killed him. One of the three apostles that was closest to Jesus. You remember, there were three that were the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They were the ones who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. The ones who were with Jesus in the house of Jairus when he healed, his, when he raised his daughter from the dead. They were the only apostles that were allowed to enter into that room and see that miracle. James, one of those close, intimate three, had been killed. And Peter, one of the others of those three, had been taken. A man who was Definitely the spokesman for the apostles. And there he is in prison, just waiting for the end of the festival when his execution is about to take place. Not only that, but the church had sufficiently been crushed under Herod's powerful thumb. It's interesting because back in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the other apostles had been arrested, if you remember. And they had been thrown into jail by the the Jewish authorities, but they had been set free miraculously. And I'm sure that Herod heard about that. So he took extra precautions with Peter, assigning four uh, squads of soldiers. Uh, Each squad would have contained four men to guard Peter. Apparently two of them were chained directly to him. And two of them stood outside the door of his cell. And those squads of soldiers could rotate every three hours throughout the night to make sure that Peter was always under the watch of fresh eyes. No chance for him to escape. And of course, we looked last week at Peter. What Peter was doing as he slept peacefully in prison. And we looked at what that said about Peter Well, this week I'd like to to, to turn our attention to the church in Jerusalem. Next week we'll talk about Herod. We look at the church. What would you expect the church in Jerusalem to do at this moment in time? One of their leaders has been killed. Another of their leaders has been arrested and is going to be killed very soon. What would they do? What would you do? What would I do? Of course, the obvious answer is that, well, they would pray, right? They would get together and pray for Peter's release. Well, that seems obvious to us because we know the story. But I want you to think about this for a minute. 
When James was arrested by Herod, don't you think the church prayed for his release? I mean, it doesn't mention much about that. It just says that he was, that he was taken and killed. But don't you think the church prayed for him? Don't you think that they got together and, 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 and prayed fervently and diligently for his release? And yet, Herod succeeded in removing James' head. You see, it, it may seem easy for us to say, well, we would pray for Peter's release if we had been members of the Church of Jerusalem. But would we continue to pray when our earlier prayers had gone unanswered? We prayed for James and God had let him die. Would we have continued in prayer for Peter then? Especially when the church began to pray for Peter and the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread continued on and Peter still continued there in prison. How many days would we continue to pray? With what kind of urgency and determination would we pray? The truth is this, though, and Homer Kent suggests this in his commentary on Acts, that we have no other weapon with which to combat such powerful opposition than prayer. And and Kent says this, and I like this, because we do not, I I just think we, we, we do not, we don't really believe this. This is what Kent said. The spiritual power which prayer unleashed was more than match for Herod. And Herod may seem not that significant to us, but Herod represented the entire authority of the entire Roman government. All of its power, all of its authority. And yet, the prayer of the church Kent says, unleashed spiritual power that was more than match for Herod. Please don't misunderstand what was taking place here, though. I want you to notice, because I don't want to get a wrong idea here. Verse 5, Luke tells us that while Peter was kept in the prison, the church was offering constant prayer, fervent prayer. The word constant there has the idea of of being stretched out. They were stretching themselves out. This was with determined effort. They were upholding Peter in continual fashion. Knowing the great difficulty he must be enduring in the prison. Knowing the very real danger of discouragement. And disillusionment that often comes with the trials of life. As a side note here, I just want to mention this. I think this is important. There are people here in our church who are suffering through the trials of life right now. Some of you who are here this morning are in the middle of trials that you're facing. And one of the things that we ought to be doing as a church and as their fellow Christians, we ought to understand that there is a very real danger of discouragement and disillusionment that comes when we are in the midst of trials. And the person who's sitting next to you in the pew who may be suffering And struggling day to day to just deal with what is going on in their life. Needs. They need you to understand that discouragement is constantly there. That the threat of despair is constantly present. And we ought to pray. Fervently. Stretching ourselves out in prayer. That they would be strengthened. That they wouldn't suffer despair and discouragement. But that they would draw courage and strength from God. I believe that's what the church was praying for. 
I'm sure they were praying for Peter's release. And it's okay for us to pray for release for our friends and loved ones who are suffering and struggling. But let's be honest, there are some trials you can't be released from. There are some trials that won't end. Not fully. And so praying for release is not always an option. And let's also be honest, sometimes God doesn't want us to be released from the trial. Sometimes that's part of His plan. So praying for release only goes so far. Because in James's case, release was not part of God's plan, was it? And so they prayed, I no doubt they prayed for James's release. And God didn't answer that prayer. But I also have no doubt that the church prayed that James would stay true. That he would have courage and strength not to, not to give up in the face of certain death. There's a, an account, it's not a biblical account, it actually comes from uh, a couple centuries after this time. Um, but there's an account that says, whether this is true or not, about James. That on the day that James was to be beheaded, the soldier that was guarding him, because of James's calm demeanor and his absolute confidence and faith in God, that the soldier who was guarding James became convinced that Jesus was the Christ. And that he sided with James and that he was beheaded alongside of James because he decided he was going to trust in Christ. Now that story may or may not be true, but I believe that the church was praying that James would have that kind of courage and that kind of strength from God. They weren't just praying for his release. And we know that wasn't God's will. But we understand that James faced that trial. And he went through it to the end with the strength of God and the support of the church, their prayer. This was important. The church, and now Peter is in prison. And the church was offering constant prayer, fervent prayer. It's interesting because in verse 12, we see that there was a group of them who were meeting together. Verse 12, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. This church was meeting in the home of Mary, at least one group. It seems apparently that there, was, there were many groups of the church meeting all across the city. Of course, we have to understand the historical context here. They didn't have a church building to meet in. We know that the number of people in the church early was, was large. Remember, 3,000 were saved in the day of Pentecost. 2,000 saved very shortly after that. Luke then tells us the number was up to 10,000. And then after that, he just says the number was a multitude. He just stops counting. But we also know under the persecution of Saul that much of the church scattered. We don't know how big the church in Jerusalem was. But here's at least one group meeting in the home of Mary. Others, no doubt, and the text seems to indicate, were meeting in other places across the city praying. These Christians, Herod had risen up again in persecution of the church. And what does the church do? Do they give up? Do they decide, oh, this is it, forget it, we can't fight the government, we might as well just give up? Do they scatter and run for the hills? No. What they do, they met together and they prayed. That's what we find them doing here in verse 12. They're here in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. How did Peter know? You ever think about that? How did Peter know they were in Mary's house meeting? Well, I would suggest to you that there's a very simple answer to that. They always met in Mary's house. This was a regular meeting place. The church wasn't going into hiding because of Herod. They were meeting together. They were worshiping together. Praying together. It's it's interesting. We're introduced here to, in verse 13, a girl named Rhoda. Uh, Rhoda means rose. Uh, but the, the, the word in verse 13 for girl is a word that is exclusively used in the New Testament for slaves. This was a slave girl, a servant girl. But even this young servant, even this young slave, 
was participating in the prayer meeting. She was praying for Peter's release. This is interesting. The, the insight this gives us into the early church. Everyone was united together. The, the, this time of crisis exposes for us the church, their true unity, their fellowship. How, you say, how do we, we, you're reading a lot into this. Yeah, this isn't very hard though. Mary, the homeowner, is apparently a widow. There's no husband mentioned, only her son mentioned. It's a very unusual kind of reference. It seems to indicate she's a widow, but she's a homeowner. She must have wealth. And the slave girl who watches the door. So you have everybody from the wealthy homeowner down to the slave girl. They're all meeting together, praying together. In unity, in oneness, in fellowship. This was a church with a burden and with the faith and determination to seek God's help. You know, humanly speaking, Peter's escape from prison was impossible. And I would suspect that that's at least part of the reason why Herod had the guards put to death. Because he assumed they must have been involved. It had to be an inside job. Of course, we understand that humanly speaking, Peter's escape was impossible, but we are not limited to human means. And that's the entire point of going to God in prayer. We as a church, we as Christians, we are not limited to human means. We have at our disposal the power of God. And so here we have The church praying. <laughs> Inviting through their prayer the all-powerful creator and ruler of the universe to use any means at his disposal, whether supernatural or natural, to accomplish his purpose. And any time we pray, that's what we're doing. We are inviting the creator of the universe to come and work in us and through us to accomplish his purpose. Of course, we shouldn't be surprised when God moves in response to our prayer and does something that we had considered impossible. It seems that the church was a little bit surprised by it here. But the fact is, if God has saved us, isn't that already a miracle? Bringing life to the dead, isn't that miraculous? And if God can do that, then anything else that we seek is within his power. And the church prayed and God moved. And I love this story because the church prayed fervently. And God moved beyond the scope of human ability. He sent an angel. And the angel came to Peter, rousing him from sleep. Breaking the chains off of his wrists. Figure that out. He's chained to two guards. The chains fall off his wrists. There's a bright light in the cell. The angel says, get up. Get your clothes on. Let's go. The guards don't say a thing. They go through the door of the cell. The guards who are standing outside that are guarding, they don't say a thing. They walk past those guards. Walk down the halls, wherever they have to go. I don't know how they got out of the prison. Then they walk out to the gate of the prison, this iron gate that's closed. And as they approach the gate, it opens completely on its own. This was not an escape from prison. You see, if it was an escape, then we could say, well, yeah, this, that's, that's a great escape. What a, what a masterful uh, you know, prison break Peter made. That's not what this was. This was a divine rescue And I think that Charles Wesley, when he wrote the hymn, And Can It Be, may have had this in mind. In the fourth verse of that hymn, this is what he wrote. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. 
I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Peter's rescue was so dramatic, so miraculous, that Peter himself struggled to believe that it was really happening. And then when he got to Mary's house, verse 15, we find that Rhoda believes that Peter's been released from prison and she runs to tell the others. And they said to her, you're crazy. You're beside yourself. And she kept insisting. She was insistent, didn't go open the door, but she was insistent that this was Peter. And they say, well, it must be his angel. Whether they thought that Peter had been already killed and that was his spirit maybe. Or whether they actually believed it was his guardian angel. Some people have suggested that. The believers who had been praying for Peter found it easier to believe that Peter had died and gone to heaven than that God had rescued him from Herod. And the very fact that God delivers or delivered Peter I think brings up for us a challenging question. Why would God deliver Peter but not deliver James? Why? Did the church not have enough faith when James was taken? Was their prayer hindered by some sin? We might speculate about this, about why that would happen. But I would suggest to you that speculation is at best meaningless and, 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 and at worst destructive to our faith here. It does seem obvious to me that if perfect faith was required for God to answer prayer, then Peter would not have been freed. Because the church didn't even believe that Peter was free when he was standing at the door of the house. Perfect faith was not required for God to do what God was going to do. That's good because if it was perfect faith required, we're in trouble. And we can't get much benefit from this. How do we explain it? Why would God deliver Peter, but then allow James, or after having allowed James to die, why not deliver James? Well, I think F.F. F. Bruce says it best, and I don't, I, I, rather than say it in my own words, I'll just read you his. He says this, that James should die while Peter should escape is a mystery of divine providence, which has been repeated countless times in the history of the people of God. By faith, says the writer to the Hebrews, some escaped the edge of the sword. By faith, Others were killed with the sword. And you can read that in Hebrews 11, verses 34 and 37. You ever thought about that? Hebrews 11. It says that by faith there were some who escaped the edge of the sword. What a wonderful rescue. As God protected those who trusted in Him. But by faith others were killed. How were they killed by faith? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. God freed Peter before Herod could kill him because it was God's will to do so. And he allowed James to die a martyr's death because that was his will. Let's learn, first of all, that prayer is not about getting a satisfactory outcome. The name it, claim it gospel is false. God is not a cosmic vending machine who gives us what we want as long as we ask Him in the right way. We don't just get what we want because we pray and ask God for it. Understand that. I'm sure the church prayed for James' release and God didn't release him. And the church prayed for Peter's release and God did. Why? Because that was God's will. And there really is no other explanation offered to us than that at this point. But I think there's some other principles of prayer that we can learn 
from this passage. And I want to focus especially on verses 17 through 19. Because I'd like, for you, I'd like to compare for you the, the, the response of the church to the response of Herod when Peter was set free. Peter's account of his rescue is not recorded in detail. In verse uh, 17, when they, Peter had kept knocking at the door and finally they let him in. And apparently there was such a, I mean, I would imagine, a lot of commotion. <laughs> apparently there was so much. Peter, we're told in verse 17, that he motioned with his hand for them to be silent. And, and he doesn't explain, Luke doesn't fill us in on exactly what Peter said. He just says that Peter declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Notice who gets credit in Peter's mind for this. It was the Lord. Peter credits God here. I think that's important. Even though we don't have the rest of Peter's story here, he doesn't, we don't have the rest of his words. We, we know this. He said it was God who did it. Peter recognized that God had listened to the prayers of the people in the church in Jerusalem and God had moved to rescue him. The contrast then is with Herod because we find in verse 18 that there was, of course, a commotion the next morning when Peter had disappeared and the soldiers, the 16 soldiers who were supposed to be guarding him, couldn't find him. Verse 19, we're told there that Herod searched for him and could not find him. And then Herod examined the guards and put them to death. I, I think Herod must have concluded the escape had been an inside job. And the soldiers were responsible. And so he had them killed. You see, Peter gave God the credit. Herod gave the soldiers the credit. Soldiers didn't do anything. They slept through it all. I don't know if they were asleep or not. They didn't see it. They didn't know what happened. God did it. And Peter recognized that. He gives the credit to God. What's the difference here between Peter and Herod? They see the same event, but they see it completely differently. Why? Well, this is the response of faith and the response of unbelief. You see, to the believer, because he begins with faith in God's power, he sees God's hand at work in the circumstances of life and in response to his prayer. Well, the Christians who had prayed for Peter's safe return recognized that God had done something miraculous. But you know, even if he had used everyday circumstances to free Peter. You know, if it hadn't been an angel, but it had been some other means by which Peter had been freed, some other human or, or you know, kind of an everyday common occurrence, I would suggest to you that the church in Jerusalem still would have given credit to God and Peter still would have credited God. You know, if Herod had come back and said, oh, this was just an administrative uh, mistake, Peter, you're free to go then they, he would have still prayed and said, God, released me. God did this. And the church would have understood that. Why? Because they began from a position of faith. They prayed in faith. Their faith was in God rather than men. The unbeliever, however, has another perspective. And no amount of evidence is convincing to the unbeliever. Because he begins by excluding the possibility that God works in and through his creation. Please understand this morning that prayer without faith is a wasted exercise. Not because it prevents God from doing what he will do. But because the faithless one will come to the wrong conclusion even when God performs a miracle. To understand the distinction between the prayer of faith and that of unbelief, we have to understand that prayer is not powerful in and of itself. When we pray, we are not offering some sort of magical incantation that results in some sort of powerful response. Let me put it this way. We've already noted that prayer cannot change God's will. And that faith determines how we'll respond to whatever God does when we pray. 
How do these two ideas complement one another? I think they point us to three very simple truths about prayer that we should take away from the message today. The first is this, that prayer demonstrates our faith in and dependence on God. Prayer demonstrates our faith in and dependence on God. For the church in Jerusalem and for Peter himself, there is simply no other recourse than to pray. That doesn't mean, by the way, that they resigned themselves to doing nothing and saying, well, I guess all we can do is pray. It means that they recognized that prayer could do what every other avenue could not do. They didn't try the other things because they recognized that prayer could do and those other things couldn't. Had they filed a grievance with Herod or tried to free Peter, by force or deception, they would have simply made things easier for Herod. Any sort of public opposition to Herod would have been an opposition to the Roman government. Would have given Herod an excuse to just come down and crush the church. Instead, they turned to the most powerful weapon in our arsenal as Christians. And I think the reason that we too often do not pray is that we don't really believe that God will do what he's promised to do. Howard Hendricks talks about this in his book, Standing Together. He reminds us that Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Again, Matthew 28 and verse 20, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But Hendricks notes that many modern Christians seem to forget these promises. And he says this, he says, Yet I find a lot of Christians today who doubt these commitments. Apparently they're not convinced that Christ will build his church because they assume that people will not even listen to the gospel. Furthermore, they are not convinced that Christ is really with them because they feel so alone in the presence of unbelievers. As a result, they do not sow seeds of faith because they do not expect faith to sprout. Do we believe that Jesus wants to build his church right here in Walworth County? Do we believe that he has promised to empower us to do the work until it is finished? Do we pray for lost people to come to the saving knowledge of Christ? Do we pray for growth, for maturity in those who are already here? Those who already name the name of Christ? Do we commit to praying? And and, and not just by ourselves. You see, this is something we need to understand. I'm not just talking about prayer by yourself. Do we commit to praying together as a body for God to do what He's already told us is His will? The truth is that we'll never be successful in reaching anyone with the gospel until we're diligent in prayer. The second truth about prayer, not only does prayer demonstrate our faith in God, but the second truth about prayer is that it is a humbling exercise which precludes our self-determination A humbling exercise which precludes our self-determination. You see, in Acts chapter 12, the church in Jerusalem had absolutely no control of the situation in which they found themselves. There was nothing they could do. And yet they prayed faithfully, only to see James beheaded and Peter delivered. What greater reminder... That God is in control and we are not. They had no illusions about their ability to control their circumstances. Because their most fervent effort had resulted in a very mixed results. I'm speaking at this point of what we ought to do when we pray and we don't get what we ask for. How do we respond to that? What does that do to us and in us? 
Do we get discouraged? Frustrated? I think if we follow their example, we will remember that prayer is about humbling ourselves before God. It's not about demanding that God serve our interests. Do we become frustrated when God does not answer our prayer in the way that we'd like? Well, to be honest and to be blunt, it's nothing more than pride. If that's our reaction, when we pray and God doesn't move the way we want, that's just pride. Arrogance. Us wanting to maintain control and set our own course as if we know what is truly best. When in fact, it's often in His mercy that God refuses to give us what we ask for. We should consider the stern rebuke that James offers. James 4 and verse 3, he says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James says, here's the problem. You're praying and you're asking for things and you're not receiving them. But it's because you're in your pride. You're lifted up against God. You're demanding from God rather than submitting to God. And James says, this is why you don't receive. Prayer is about humbling ourselves before God. The final truth concerning prayer is that it aligns us with God's will. Enabling us to see His work done in His way and at His time. Remember, it's about the response here. Peter and the believers there in the church, they recognized that it was God who was working. Herod, because he refused to trust in God, couldn't see that God was actually working in opposition to him. There was a story told about a a ship crossing the Atlantic many years ago. And the Bible teacher, F.B. Meyer, was asked to speak to the passengers. One of the men was an agnostic, and he listened to Meyer's message about answered prayer. And he told a friend, I didn't believe a word of it. Later that day, the agnostic went to hear Meyer speak to another group of passengers. But before he went, he put two oranges in his pocket. On the way, he passed an elderly woman who was fast asleep in her deck chair. Her arms were outstretched and her hands were wide open. So as a joke, he put the two oranges in her palms. After the meeting, he saw the woman happily eating one of the pieces of fruit. He said, you seem to be enjoying that orange. Yes, sir, she replied. My father is good to me. What do you mean? Pressed the agnostic. And she explained, I've been seasick for days. I asked God somehow to send me an orange. I fell asleep while I was praying. When I awoke, I found he had sent me not only one, but two oranges. The agnostic was amazed by the unexpected confirmation of Meyer's talk on answered prayer. Later in that voyage, he put his trust in Christ. It was through prayer that the church at Jerusalem was able to recognize God's hand in allowing James's life to end while extending Peter's life in ministry. You know, this. in this story, I can imagine a cynic saying, yes, she prayed, but it was, the, it was this man who didn't even believe in God who gave her the oranges. It wasn't God. And I think all this does is illustrate to us that even those who deny God serve Him when it is His will to use them. God worked and he does work the problem is that so many times we don't see it we don't realize that god is working not because god isn't working but because we are not looking with eyes of faith we're not praying with eyes of faith open and and searching for his will done in his way and at his time when we pray we're praying demanding that he do our will in our way in our time And so we fail to see what he is doing. 
I think the church in Jerusalem gives us an example of this, that we can see this was not human escape from prison. It was a divine rescue, and the church recognized that because they were looking with eyes of faith, praying, aligning with God's will and seeing His work done in His way. You see, as the church observed James's life coming to an end, and Peter's life miraculously being extended, it didn't destroy their faith. It didn't destroy their confidence in God. What it did was it gave them the strength to, to, to endure the difficulties that were still to come. Now we know from this account, we already looked at Acts chapter 11, that a famine was coming. The famine was going to come, and this church in Jerusalem was going to suffer greatly under that famine. That's why Barnabas and Saul up in Antioch were preparing. Right at this time, they were preparing money to be able to bring for relief to Jerusalem. And the famine hadn't even come yet. But God was preparing this church, strengthening their faith, not by giving them everything they asked for, freeing James and then freeing Peter, stopping Herod or whatever. That's not what God did. Yes, he allowed James to die. Yes, he freed Peter. Why? Because it caused this church to understand God is in control. And even as they prayed, they didn't get to just pick and choose what they wanted. Their prayer was offered trusting that God would accomplish his will. The question for us in response to that is this, have you and I been strengthened through prayer? Whether our requests were granted or not, either way we should, we should draw strength from this. Either way, whether God answers our prayer or not. Or have you suffered discouragement because God does not seem to move in the way and the time that you think is best. Let me close with this. When we pray, both as individuals and as a church, we ought to recognize that God is working out His will in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our nation, and in the world. We must take God at His word. We must believe that He will do what He has promised according to His wisdom. When we realize that we're not going to get everything we want because God's going to do what He wants in us, through us, and we submit ourselves to that, and we determine that we're going to continue fervently in prayer, we'll find that our, strength will be, our faith will be strengthened. Because we will focus on the truth of God's word rather than the desires of our heart. And even when we don't receive the requests, even when God doesn't seem to answer the prayer the way we think he should be done, we will be strengthened. Our faith will be built and encouraged because we'll recognize God is truly sovereign. God is truly in control. His will will be done. And I think the most important factor in all of this really comes back to that question about their relationship with God. In this chapter, Herod is an unbeliever. Herod is someone who is only concerned about his own righteousness doing what he thinks is best for him without regard to what God's word says. Herod is an unbeliever. Someone who doesn't believe that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. Someone who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ truly died on the cross and was raised for him It's sad because Herod had the opportunities to see the truth presented in the lives of James and Peter and this church. 
The truth is, Herod was a sinner who needed a Savior, but he refused to believe. In contrast to that, we have this church, these people. These people who had humbled themselves, who said, you know what, I, I understand that I'm a sinner. And that even trying to be good enough, trying to work hard and keep the law, wasn't enough. And they had trusted in Jesus Christ. And they had been saved. That's the contrast. And as I close this morning, I would just ask you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? I'm not asking, do you believe that Jesus lived, that He came to earth, that He died, that He rose again, none of that stuff. Do you know Him? We talked about this last week. It's not enough for us to just affirm some truths about Christ. We have to know Him. We have to have that relationship with Him. Do you know Him today? Because without that, you don't have any basis of faith in which to pray. And this whole this whole message about faith, about prayer is, is wasted without that relationship with Christ. You know, if you don't know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're not sure what it means to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you'd like to know that, please come and talk to me today before you leave, because the Bible tells us how we can know that our sins are forgiven. And we can stand in right relationship to Him. And then when we pray, it means something. It's not just empty words. And for those of you who are here this morning who do know Christ, let's follow the example of this church. Let's pray in faith, trusting that God will do what He says He will do.